Welcome to the Conscious Marketing Podcast, where marketers come to look themselves in the mirror and discover how to unlock their superpowers. In this episode, we discuss how to remove unconscious bias from marketing and ask ourselves, can we be civil online? We're joined by Bill Farrar, ACLU Virginia's Director of Communications, who will help us shine a light on our true biases and how we can move forward as an industry. Bill Farrar is a member of the ACLU Virginia Affiliates Leadership Team and oversees all external communications, including media relations, social media, content marketing, publications, and outreach. He leads ACLU Virginia's legislative program, works in coalition on the death penalty and solitary confinement, and oversees advocacy on equality, reproductive rights, and criminal justice reform. He is most passionate about the First Amendment, LGBT rights, and police practices reform. Bill has extensive experience in journalism, public relations, local and state government, and is a former full-time faculty member at Virginia Commonwealth University. You can learn more at ACLUVA.org. Jeff Livingston is the founder of Livingston Campaigns and Livingston Photography. He's a marketing leader, a buzz creator, a published author, and a social fundraiser. As an online marketer and social fundraiser, Jeff has helped brands and nonprofits raise more than $225 million online. And now he leverages the gig economy to make CMO level talent and marketing project execution available for companies of all sizes. You can learn more at livingstoncampaigns.com. And that brings us to me. I'm Nicole Kelly, the founder of the Conscious Marketing Institute, a marketing visionary, industry innovator, and quantum healer. I have a track record for creating evolutionary change in the marketing industry. As an early pioneer in social media measurement, I wrote the book, How to Measure Social Media, and created many of the data standards that are still in use today. But then, life took an interesting turn, and after three minor strokes and a near-death experience that were caused from over three decades on the hamster wheel of success, I founded the Conscious Marketing Institute, where we have a mission to inspire marketers to unlock their superpowers so together we can help humanity step into its full potential. Learn more at ConsciousMarketingInstitute.com. Please join Jeff and I in a warm welcome for today's guests, and together, let's create an industry-wide evolution of consciousness. Hi, everybody. I'm Jeff Livingston. I'm here with my esteemable and mighty colleague, Nicole Kelly, who is obviously the leader of the Conscious Marketing Institute, and my friend, Bill Farrar, who is head of communications and much more at ACLU Virginia. And we have a, a really, really special episode for you all today. And I've known Bill a long time, so Bill, really appreciate you coming on board. Now, uh, when I first met you, you were teaching at Vanderbilt, but over the past few years, you've been with the ACLU, uh, and in particular in Virginia. Can you tell us a little more about what the ACLU does? Sure. And just quick, teaching at uh, Virginia Commonwealth University. Sorry about that. But uh, yeah, so I've been with the ACLU of Virginia for going on three years, and I'm the Director of Strategic Communication. Um, and our organization is growing. We're, we're fortunate to be able to, uh, to be adding on uh, staff in all three of our areas of, of integrated advocacy, which I, I think we're going to talk about. Um, but yeah, the ACLU is a national, nonprofit, nonpartisan civil rights organization. It works on just about anything related to individual constitutional rights. The ACLU has been around almost 100 years and is probably best known for its litigation. We've been involved in a lot of landmark cases 
uh, over the years, and ACLU has probably done more to shape uh, the state and expansion of, of civil rights and civil liberties in, uh, in America than uh, almost next to the federal government is probably um, the next uh, biggest influencer. And, and so um, I work for the Virginia affiliate of, affiliate of the ACLU. There are 54 affiliates across the country. Um, every state has one. Some have more than one. Um, and we're working on the ground here in the, in the state of Philly. We've been around almost uh, 50 years and have been involved in some, you know, very landmark uh, decisions and activities ourselves, including um, the Loving versus case that everybody's aware of that uh, is the case that has established the legality that it's legal to marry someone of a, of a different ethnic uh, background, racial background. And um, so, um, you know, I look at the work we do here in Virginia as kind of applying, you know, the state and local lens to what the national ACLU does. So, um, and, and it's important, I try to always, you know, remind everybody and encourage everybody to, to remember that, you know, the concerns that we have about what's happening, you know, in, inside the Beltway uh, right now are, are playing out, you know, in every state and, and locality in the country in, in various and frightening um, ways. And it's not just what's happening in Washington that we need to be concerned about, but what's happening, you know, in our own backyard and coming from a, you know, local government um, background myself, I know, you know, that means, you know, in your, in your local courts, in your local jail, in your schools, in your school boards, in your city councils, and, and out in the streets, in your, your police departments. I mean, these are the, the issues that we work on, which includes, uh, you know, police practices, criminal justice reform, voting rights, free speech, uh, reproductive freedom, um, uh, equality for all, including LGBT and, and people of color and, and immigrants. Um, you know, these are, these are very deep um, and broad issues that, that affect all of us in, in, in very direct ways. So I'm, I'm really pleased and, and proud to be a part of the ACLU. You in particular, because you're mm -hmm. in Virginia, have really been at the forefront of some major national issues. Uh, uh, the Charlottesville uh, incident that happened last summer is one. Uh, there was uh, the one where uh, I had the privilege of going out and meeting you and uh, uh, photographing Gavin Grimm, who... Uh, mm -hmm was, you know, obviously looking at transgender rights in high school. Uh, and then, of course, there's uh, solitary confinement issues, which have been bubbling up as of uh, late, and they're coming out of uh, Virginia to some extent. So I was wondering, like, you know, yeah, we're dealing with this crazy time, and here you are at the nexus of it. Can you, can you tell us what, what the last couple of years have been like for you? Kind of, kind of crazy, and um, you know, I don't, I don't. You're talking about the, you know, the state involvement versus the national involvement. I mean, we're an organism. The ACLU is an organism, and the state affiliates operate, you know, somewhat independently from the national. We have our own governance, and we set our own policy. Our board does, and priorities, and we make our own decisions about the work we do, and when and where we might vary from, you know, national policy. But, but we're an organism, and and, and I really view, um, you know, being on the ground at a state affiliate. Um, as being, uh, in, in a way, a, a little more raw um, and, and not stay away at all. The National is some amazing, amazing work. But, you know, I, what I really enjoy about my, my job is not only being able to talk about these things in a theoretical way and, and have influence through the media um, and other channels, but, you know, to, to be on the ground and, and be working directly with the people who are affected by these things. Because when you talk about, you know, a case like Gavin Grimm, which, you know, the transgender teenager from Gloucester County, who sued a school board for, for a discriminatory policy that disallowed him to be able to use restrooms that comported with his gender identity. Um, you know, this is a case that went almost to the Supreme Court and is probably going back there. Um, and, and Gavin became, you know, an international figure for good reason. He's an amazing advocate 
um, you know, for equality. And, um, and he's, you know, I'm proud to say he's a very good friend of mine at this point. And, you know, th that's something that, you know, the, the reason, part of the reason that that case had such impact is people could see, you know, through Gavin's example, you know, the impact that, that, that these things are having, this type of discrimination has on people. And, and so you have to remember that, you know, anytime there's a case like that, as being a non-lawyer, being the communicator, anytime there, there's, a, there's a case like that, um, you know, it, it's someone, someone's rights have been violated. So um, that's not what we want. And, and so, you know, whether we're talking about, um, you know, a case like that or talking about, you know, free speech rights versus racial justice in Charlottesville, if we're talking about solitary confinement, you know, the thing that really keeps me going um, is the urgency of, of that work and that people are being harmed right now. So, you know, I go to these meetings with, with you know, elected and appointed officials and, and talk about something like solitary confinement and advocate through the media for, you know, an end to, to this, you know, really torturous, inhumane practice. And, and those are nice conversations and we talk about, you know, why we shouldn't do this and, and all that. But the thing that keeps me going is there are hundreds of people that are suffering under those conditions right now. And that's the urgency of, of doing this work to me. So it, it's been kind of a crazy um, couple of years. I, you know, um, I've been in communications for almost 30 years. This is my fourth, or over 30 years. This is my fourth uh, career, starting as a journalist and a government official, and then teaching, as you mentioned, and now uh, doing civil rights work. And you know, I wish I'd found it 30 years ago. Um, so I'm I'm proud to be here. It, it's, it has been a little bit of a crazy, uh, crazy couple of years to be involved in some of those things, um, you know, up close, um, and have not only the you know bringing the ACLU you know, to those things, but myself personally as well. Yeah, I'm, I just want to say I'm super excited to have you here because I know just, and Jeff and I have talked about this in my own personal life, I have been um, going through the legal system and really understanding uh, and becoming like, and really just getting to experience what it's like when um, you're the defendant in a case mm -hmm. and and I didn't have legal representation. And I learned this thing called rule number one, which is essentially that judges, um, uh, basically, they don't like people representing themselves. And so I was losing time and time again, and still have been, um, because I'm representing myself. And uh, and I look at the the legal system, and you know, in this case in particular, we're talking about mental health, we're talking about medical rights, HIPAA right violations, mm -hmm. where the court has just literally like just walked all over my rights for privacy as well as um, you know recognition of mental health issues. And I, I look at this and I just say, wow, like because I had never been in the court system in this way. I didn't realize how difficult it is for an individual to navigate the court system without an attorney. And, and if you were looking at this and you have situations where, you know, you have people who are trying to navigate this system and want to know what to do and maybe have civil rights issues going on, what would you recommend to them? Well, get a lawyer is a good idea. <laughs> yeah. but, but, you know, even before, uh, you know, you get to that point, you know, people are, are woefully un about the, the judicial system, about the criminal justice system. And if it's, if it's been that hard for you, imagine how hard it is, you know, for someone, you know, he's, who's economically disadvantaged or, or, or disadvantaged because the criminal justice system is biased against people of color. Mm -hmm. um, you know, um, it's, it's a tremendous uphill battle. It's one of the reasons that we're um, in the ground phases, the early stages of a campaign to bring attention to Commonwealth's attorneys in Virginia. And this is something that a lot of um, state affiliates to the ACLU have taken on uh, because people just don't know, you know, what the Commonwealth attorney or the district attorney, they call it in other states, 
do and the unparalleled power that they have uh, to, to make decisions that are going to affect you for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're in Virginia, they're elected. They are largely unaccountable. Uh, they uh, run for office unopposed and they stay in those seats for years and years and the measure of their success, the way they, they measure their own success in, to their peers is by the number of convictions that they get, the number of people they send to jail. Well, well that's, not, that's not justice, that's, that's the criminal part, that's not justice. And so you know, we're trying to do a lot of uh, public education to, to inform people to be able to ask their Commonwealth attorneys and those candidates good questions so they know who they're voting for and they let them know that you know, we, we, we need to be looking at things like bail reform and policing for profits, so civil asset forfeiture and things like that, that that people just don't understand. They don't understand that that those folks have more power, you know, honestly, than the judges do in the criminal justice system because they make dozens and dozens of decisions before a case even comes to trial. So, yeah, absolutely. It's it's super complicated. You're better to, to know these things before you, you know, have a reason to be involved in it. So I hope it goes well for you. Thank you. And just looking at kind of the state of where we are right now, you, you mentioned, you know, we're kind of in these tumultuous times in the country. And um, as we've been discussing and looking at civil rights in particular, as well as just how marketing is involved in this, being a communications professional, one of the things that we've been looking at is specifically bias that is perpetuated by marketing and perpetuated by the media. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are your thoughts on how, you know, first, do you see this? You know, do you see it being perpetuated? How do you see it being perpetuated? And then what can we do about it? Well, I think, I think we're getting better at it. I mean, I think we see it less than we used to, but um, we're also more attuned to it than we, than we used to be. So um, it's, you know, it, with the ACLU, I think the way we try to, you know, approach it is, um, you know, let me back up. I think part of the problem, part of why we see that is that, that people are, are um, not as discerning perhaps as they should be about where they get their information and, with, and for communicators, you know, not fully embracing the research aspect of, of what we're supposed to be doing um, and making assumptions based on our implicit bias or based on biased sources or biased, you know, Google uh, information that, that, that um, sends us in a wrong direction. And so, you know, we try very consciously to, you know, each of the people who work here to be very conscious of our own implicit biases and be more inclusive you know, about how we program our work. And, and there's a saying in the advocacy world that you don't, you know, talk about us without us. And that means, you know, that if we're talking about racial equity, that we, that I, as a, you know, white, heterosexual, cisgender, reasonably affluent male, you know, don't assume that I understand that and design communications and messaging uh, around it. Um, because you, you, you very likely end up in a, in a bad place. So, you know, we try very, you know, deliberately to, you know, not just you know, you have a poster person who represents, you know, an effective vulnerable community, but to involve that community, you know, in our discussions and making sure that we understand um, what we're talking about and what the appropriate fix is and how to, how to go about that. And we're doing that um, more and more, not just, you know, bringing people to the table, but, but hiring people, hiring formerly incarcerated people to, to do the work that we're talking about. Um, Excellent. Yeah. Hey, Bill, I mean, like one of the things that we're starting to see now, particularly with all the machine learning that's being deployed and automation is a uh, bias, if you would, whether it's intentional or, or unconscious or subconscious, however you want to say that, uh, is, is kind of making its way into bots. I mean, I think uh, there's that famous story about uh, the African-American uh, couple that were putting up their photos and kept getting classified by Google as gorillas. And no matter how many times 
Google tried to tweak it, the formula was not able to adapt and it was a huge, and for good reason, a huge issue. Uh, and Google is very aware that uh, human failings are making its way into its algorithms and they're trying to address that, even use machine learning to unwrite those algorithms to some extent. Uh, what are your thoughts about automated prejudice or automated bias, if you would? Uh, well, I'm, I'm not an expert, you know, on that, but I think it, you know, highlights the need to, to have real conversations with real people um, and, and not assume that technology is always, you know, going to provide us with the proper answer. Um, and, you know, I think it's important also for, for, as marketers, if we make a mistake, you know, in that arena that we, that our bias plays out into our work in a way that, you know, offends, you know, certain communities or, or misportrays um, certain communities that we own that. We take responsibility for that and fix it. My favorite example um, along those lines is a, a radio ad campaign that the ad council put out back in the early 2000s on uh, buckling up and it was targeted at urban audiences and presumably these PSAs were, you know, distributed to the, the urban, you know, radio stations and, and the messaging is just horrible. It's, it's, you know, I can't, I, I, I'm, I'm in a wheelchair and I can't play basketball because I didn't buckle up. I'm, I can't enjoy my mom's home cooking because my mouth is wired shut. Um, and, and they pulled it, you know, really quickly. And you can imagine the backlash over something like that. They're horrendous, um, but they pulled it. And, you know, so I, I, I hopefully they learn from that. I mean, all, all we can do is, is people is own our mistakes and, and try and correct them. So, you know, I, I think, you know, here at the ACLU, we're trying to have more and more, you know, real conversations with real people and not rely on what we think we know or what, you know, a, a bot or something else is going to tell us. I think that's a really good suggestion. And I, I, we see this so much in marketing teams. And I'll just say, you know, the marketing industry is primarily white men and women, to be honest. You know, like I saw, you know, the... Um, was it the Dove campaign where, you know, you have a, a white per, or a, an African-American person pulling off their, or I think can't remember which way it went. It was like white to black or black to white. I don't remember. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I, I looked at that and I was like, that can only happen in a marketing team of white people because like, I, you, like if you are of color, either you felt you didn't have a voice and couldn't say anything, or you just are completely blind to regardless of, what you feel about it, that it could offend. And as marketers, I think sometimes we get so caught up in thinking that we understand our customers. And when you're dealing with customers who are not you, ultimately, right, um, that have differences than you, it's important to have them as a seat at, a seat at the table. And, um, you know, we, we kind of joked on the last episode about, you know, I, I still like, you know, men making bras, you know, working in bra companies and marketing bras, like you, you don't, you know, like it, you don't have to wear a bra, right? So like, how are you going to tell me what, a, how, how good a bra is going to feel, right? Um, and I think this goes across the board, but oh. having, <laughs> having literally what I did last weekend. <laughs> yeah. I'm not saying that men don't wear bras. I'm simply saying that without yeah. breasts, it's hard for you to understand things like, you know, where your back starts to hurt and things like that. So, um, so having that seat at the table, I think is really important. And I think that most companies have become so disconnected from their customer base that, I mean, they don't even have like an advisory board of customers anymore. It's like, we're so focused on the speed of getting messages out and the speed of return on investment that we've really forgot to bring the right people to the table. So thank you for that. Yeah. And, it, and it's not, it's not, it's not necessarily just an advisory board or a focus group or whatever. It's bringing those people on the team and having a real diversity in your organization and living the values that you, that you claim to have. And, 
you know, I know here when we go through a hiring process, um, the, the, a very deliberate part of the, the process is analyzing, you know, the pool of applicants and, and, and what it looks like and who's in it and who advances, you know, through that process, not just making sure that, you know, we, we advertise in a way that's going to, you know, solicit people of color or women or, you know, formerly incarcerated people are impacted um, by the issues that we talk about, but making sure that those people advance, you know, through through the hiring process. And if they don't, then, you know, why was that? Was it, was it because of our biases? And then, you know, we need to try harder. So, uh, you know, really having those people at the table, truly at the table and not just, you know, what do you think about this ad that we're about to run that we think we, is okay. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah. Um, you know, I guess one of the things that we wanted to talk to you a little bit about was, uh, Oh, boy, it's such a tough issue. Um, but uh, some of the stuff that you're dealing with online with uh, some of the comments you're receiving and uh, obviously it's just a huge issue. I mean, civility is, I mean, it's such a dangerous word today, right? I mean, in one way you want to have manners and treat each other with respect, but in another way you're uh, stopping on somebody's uh, rights, their ability to speak. And, uh, and then they're, becomes hate speech and then it can get violent. And we're seeing very, very uh, strong movements, not only on the right side, but also on the left with uh, movements like Antifa. And then uh, mm -hmm. most recently with uh, several senior Republicans getting approached in public restaurants and things like that. And again, Virginia with the red hen. I mean, I thought that was out of the four incidents that I'm aware of. That was obviously the most civil discourse that occurred where it was very polite and, Mm -hmm. Very, very reasonable. But then in DC, we're starting to see like, you know, some, it's getting pretty loud, you know? So, yeah. Just give us your general thought on that. Um, I know it's a tough topic for the ACLU. Well, it's, it is and it isn't. I mean, I think, um, you know, the civility, the whole civility debate is really fascinating, uh, both from an organizational you know, perspective and personally, you know, trying to find my own space and how to engage with with people on the street or with friends and, and colleagues, you know, family members, you know, who, who may have very different opinions, you know, than I do. Um, and, but I think, you know, one thing in, you know, the current state of affairs and, you know, whether, you know, it's hypocrisy for, for the right or for certain actors to, um, to use civility, uh, you know, to, to defend themselves um, against criticism uh, is, is it, let's look at the things that, that they're doing. Let's look at the policies and the practices of, of some of the people who are making those claims. And, and you know, it's not just talking about, you know, race, racism. It's not just talking about, you know, separating people. We're, we're hurting people in this right. country. You know, we're doing things, um, the federal government is doing things, and, and state local governments are doing things to, to deliberately hurt people of color, um, people who are LGBT, uh, women in particular, you know, all, all directly under attack, things that are going to, drastically affect their lives for, for generations to come. And they're not just words. So I, I do find it a little ironic, you know, that, that, that we're having a debate over civility at a time when we're just, you know, really directly harming people, not just even talking about it. Um, so, so there's that. And, you know, for the ACLU, I think it is, it is a difficult balance because, you know, as, as we found, as you mentioned, you know, post Charlottesville and, and, and ongoing, um, you know, there's, there is a, a, a balance that we're seeking to strike between our defense of free speech and our racial justice work. And that is a, a balance that we're, we're finding, that we're trying, trying to find, because both of those things are, are very important. You know, obviously, we want to 
um, you know, advance uh, racial equality. Um, at the same time, you know, being in a position of defending the rights of someone who doesn't agree with that is a difficult space. And, and if you're affected, you know, by those words, they're in, in this time and place, they're not just words anymore. You know, we, we, uh, you know, we had the Skokie case with the ACLU some years ago where uh, the, the national organization or I guess the state affiliate defended, you know, the rights of Nazis to march. Well, the fact is they never marched. You know, we're, we're in a place where, you know, we're, we're trying to, you know, continue our defense of, of free speech because that is, you know, the foundation, you know, for many of the other rights that we have. Dissent is patriotic. Um, and, and so we, we need that. Um, but we're also at a place where we have to understand that that those words hurt. They're not just words anymore. They're people who are, who are taking those words, you know, to action in a very, very direct way. Yeah. Go ahead, Nicole. Sorry. Um, so how, how do we, in, in this time that we're in, where people, it, it definitely feels like there's this divide happening, right? Mm -hmm. And people are choosing corners and there's many corners being chosen. How do we come together and have these conversations when what I'm seeing on all sides is, is, you know, we're choosing, we're choosing a side and then we're making the other side the villain, you know? Mm -hmm. And so how, how can we actually have civility when, you know, you know, just as an example, Jeff and I talked about this where, you know, we wanted to have this conversation about racial bias and even finding a guest who would come onto the show that wasn't biased was, mm. was very difficult. And we're so thankful that you're here because what we found is as we were reaching out to the community and um, finding people of co color that they, there was a heavy bias against white people in general, and that we were the villains, even though we were offering a platform to have this conversation in a very open and loving way. Mm -hmm. And that was just our experience with it. But I see this happening across the board where we villainize the people that we feel are suppressing us or oppressing us. Right. And at the same time, those people are the exact people that we need on our side to actually end the, you know, to end what we're talking about. The Conscious Marketing Podcast is sponsored by the Conscious Marketing Institute. Learn more at ConsciousMarketingInstitute.com. Are you ready to go further? Check out the latest free masterclasses and upcoming courses. Learn more at ConsciousMarketingInstitute.com. Am I striking a chord for you today? You can hire me too. Learn how at ConsciousMarketingInstitute.com. Just click on services. And now let's get back to the show. Mm -hmm. And that was just our experience with it. But I see this happening across the board where we villainize the people that we feel are suppressing us or oppressing us. Right. And at the same time, those people are the exact people that we need on our side to actually end the, you know, to end what we're talking about. Yeah, well, name calling doesn't help, you know, and, and I think, you know, both sides are, are guilty of that. And um, I, I'll give a personal example, because I'm struggling, you know, to find my own place in, in this and, and you know, the, the balance between um, you know, everyone has the right to their own opinion um, and, and understanding that those opinions, you know, can hurt. Um, I recently had an interaction with a friend of 20 years online and um, chose to, you know, confront that person over some remark, remarks they've made about the Red Hand incident, that, that comparing uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders to the Woolworths, you know, sit-in protesters of the 50s and 60s. And which I just found to be horrendous, a horrendous comparison. You're talking about, you know, a group of people that were literally fighting for their rights and fighting for their lives. And this person didn't even bother to mention that they were African-Americans. You're comparing them to a person who is an active instrument of racism in this country right now. Right. So, 
um, you know, I chose to, you know, speak to this person and, and, and try to engage in a civil, in a civil d debate and was met with uh, no real response to the criticism that I had given, but to, you know, that I needed a lesson in manners and, um, you know, insults and accusations and defriended and blocked and gone. Right. You know, so I don't know how, you know, I don't know, I, I don't know, I'm struggling with my own space and how to the balance between, you know, letting certain things lie and not, you know, engaging in a debate that's going to be harmful and, you know, how to, how to help people. Because I think that there, you know, are, are a lot of people who are, are, are in their echo chamber and they're hearing the things that they want to hear and they're reflecting the things they want to hear. And it's important, you know, to talk about these things. We're not, you know, we're not healing um, or, or, or learning or growing by not talking about these things. It's part of what I love about my role at the ACLU. I get to do that, you know, with, on a large scale with a megaphone. Um, but how to do it, you know, on a personal um, level can be really challenging. I've definitely found that. And I have friends on all sides of the aisle. And when I see these kind of posts, because I've seen very similar things, just incredibly racially biased, um, incredible villainization happening on both sides, quite frankly. And uh, the best thing that I found to do is I always come in and I start, the, I start my response with, I love you. And <laughs> <laughs> I love you. And um, here's a blind spot that you may not see, or have you considered this perspective? And fortunately it's worked out really well, actually. Like I've, I've actually like been able to diffuse some of these conversations. I've opened doors for a wider perspective, but at the same time, like not, I think because I'm coming at it and just saying like, I love and respect you, it helps to diffuse any kind of anger or attack because it's hard to villainize me when I'm saying that I love you on the other end of it. Um, but I hear you like it's, it's, it's definitely been an interesting, just Facebook in general as a Gen Xer mm -hmm. right now is a, it's a landmine. You get into these conversations and immediately when you post something, you know, I, I've been attacked. I've been, you know, all kinds of things have happened. Um, and, and you have to be really strong on the other end of it. You have to really know that, like, know what at your core is your truth. And that if other people don't agree with you, that has to be okay. If they unfriend you, it has to be okay. But not saying something to me is more damaging than allowing this stuff to fester because you're right. People are in these echo chambers and they're influencing a group of people to hold bias overall to like they're they're ex accentuating bias and getting into this echo chamber and it's like on one side it's like people are literally silencing themselves because they don't want to say something and end up into the cesspool of debate and then other people are blatantly coming out saying these things and then not allowing a conversation to happen so civil discourse on facebook is um it's uh, an interesting water right now <laughs> It is. It's funny, I got kind of uh, roasted quite a bit for saying that I, I don't see a lot of value in going up to these people, uh, you know, and screaming at them. And then, of course, somebody did that to Scott Pruitt and he got canned. But, you know, uh, I mean, like, but for me, I, A, it doesn't fit what I want to be, you know, like, I don't want to be that guy. And, mm -hmm. and B, the part of me that's a communicator sees what this administration or these people do when you arm them with that and, and they, they put themselves on the cross, you know, they martyr themselves. And I, I think uh, to your point, Bill, I, I don't see what they're doing as right, but I do see uh, more civil forms of protest and mass in size mm -hmm. being worthwhile. I mean, for me, 
like when I look at what happened to, uh, I guess, Kirsten, what's her last name? The uh, DHS head or McConnell. Or even Pruitt, I would love to see a protest set up outside that restaurant. You know, I would love to see that kind of stuff happening. Because uh, to me, that's power. And if there's anything that this administration has shown is that it is extraordinarily media sensitive. So as soon as they start getting uh, uh, a lot of negative media, not just from the left, but from uh, middle and uh, even right sources, they, they, they start reacting and moving. And, uh, uh, you know, as much as they cry fake, they read it. Um, and to me, yeah, I, I think there's a difference, you know, between, you know, confronting a, a, a public official in a restaurant or on the street and, and nudging a friend, you know, or a family member that you see, um, you know, doing, doing harm by their words. And, and so I'm, I'm in the space of, of that and not the other. And, you know, we look at the red hen situation and, you know, I'm not saying I, that that wasn't the right thing to do. I don't know what the right thing to do was. I don't know what I would have done in that situation because you're going to have a person who's, you know, in her mind standing up for employees who are part of a marginalized, marginalized um, community. But those, those people also, I, I, I think, are being denied services themselves, you know, in certain places. So how are we, you know, winning the argument by, by doing the same thing, you know, that, 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 that we disagree with when it's done to people we care about. I, I personally um, stay away, you know, when, when those situations are happening. I know there are others that feel it's really important, you know, to get out there and confront. And, and I don't know what the right space is. I know um, when I was really early in my career, I was a, um, newspaper reporter in a small town and we had a Klan rally that was um, was scheduled. They got a permit and, and our uh, publisher was super nervous about it because they last time they come to town, there was a near riot. There's um, people that confronted them in the streets. And so with the question of what to do and, and my gut, you know, at that time was why would we cover it? You know, the, let's, let's stay away. Let's don't talk about it because, you know, you look at those situations, you look at, you know, Westboro Baptist Church and they show up and, and the reason they show up is because they get media coverage and they get and the media whips the town into a frenzy and then people, you know, show up and confront the streets and now we've got a story. Um, so and in that case, we had, you know, it was three people walking in a parking lot with hoods on their heads and, you know, Confederate flags and they went away and we didn't write anything and it was a non-issue. And I'm not saying that was because of us, but I felt good about, you know, doing handling it that way. Um, so, you know, on, at the same time, I've, I, I go to protests, I show up to protests. I was in, you know, Pittsburgh a few weeks ago and, and got out in the streets with the community when, when the, the police shot a, shot a black teenager in the back, um, in the streets. Um, and when that happened, I'm going to be there, I'm going to be there when that happens. So, um, you know, I think we're all kind of struggling. It's a long, long answer, but I think we're all struggling to find our place. And yeah. it's also like looking at like what's effective, right? You know, so like the the protesting, I love that the one pointing out that attention creates more, right? So whatever we give attention to, we create more of. And so um, not paying as much attention to the things that we don't want to create more of is a worthwhile um, venture. But, you know, even in just like looking at, you know, the protests and yes, we have a right to protest, but what's actually going to create change? You know, we have even, you know, the, I look at the women's march, you know, you had millions of people marching on DC. What actually changed as a result of that? And how can, when we see, you know, our rights being violated, how can we come together as a group and what is the most effective approach that's actually going to generate change? And I'm not saying that protest doesn't create change. I'm simply, in that example, I didn't see any tangible change as a result of it. In other cases I have, um, you know, but what do you do? Like what actually works? 
I mean, I think it is important to protest and we can look at, you know, the, the civil rights movement of the 60s is a good example of, of how people coming together and exercising their right to speak about change and, and, and change doesn't happen overnight. It's not going to happen as a result of, you know, a protest, but it can happen as a result of a movement. Um, you know, I, I mentioned Pittsburgh, you know, the other week and I happened to be there at a convening of ACLU colleagues from across the country to work on, you know, how to plan and execute strategies to advance racial justice and here. You know, the night I got there, they black kid in the streets. Um, and there's, you know, we can have that debate about, you know, did marching in the streets um, do any difference? How did that, how does that advance our racial justice work? I don't know, but I do know that we marched in the streets that night. We marched in front of the DA's office the next day, and those officers have been charged with a crime. And that doesn't happen all the time. So that's the outcome of, of that. Um, you know, exercise of free speech. I'm, I'm good with that. Yeah. And definitely I feel like, like you said, when there is a group, it creates the story. So just as like not adding attention to the things we don't want, adding attention to the things that we do want can be equally effective. And okay. I have noticed in this uh, administration that there is a really heightened sensitivity to uh, to media coverage, you know, watching Trump essentially completely flip on immigration. And even though he like stood up and was like, I'm the hero here, who cares? He right, started, right. he stopped separating families. You know? <laughs> like, yeah. That's a good, that's a good example. And, and one other thing I wanted to say in terms of just, you know, personal interactions that, that I'm learning is as much as I can remove the word you from yeah. those uh, discussions, the, the better um, that, and that's a mistake I made with the friend that I lost. And I don't, I don't regret, you know, getting involved there and having that interaction. Um, but I'm going to be more careful about using that word in those discussions and sticking strictly you know, to what the issue is and what's right and wrong and, and not about how you chose to verbalize it or what you, you know, may think or, or, or making it unintentionally making it personable, personal or, or interpreting, um, you know, the, the person's words in a way that may not be what they meant. I think it was just strike that from my, from my, uh, from my, my dictionary for those purposes. Bill, that's marriage 101. Never say you. <laughs> <laughs> It's true, though. Like, I think um, you know, what I what I find is that in a lot of these debates, um, it's a dehumanization that's happening. It's like, you know, I no longer view you as a human who's had a life experience that has a heart that has feelings. I'm judging you by the decisions that you've made without understanding that the decisions that you've made have come from conditioning that you've received from your own life experiences. Like I have no idea what someone else's experience is. And the truth of the matter is we are all incredibly unique. Like no one else has ever lived my life. No one's lived Jeff's life. No one's lived your life. We are completely unique snowflakes, if you will, of experience. And if you, if you can see that and you can see that it is a, another human on the other end, that they truly believe that whatever they're doing is right or that they're, they're expressing something that's important to them, it's easier to, um, to connect with them on a human to human level. And I think that that's one of the reasons that when, and I, I have to say, like, I've entered a lot of these discussions. Like, you know, my partner is kind of like, are you on Facebook again talking about civil rights? <laughs> are you on Facebook again talking about politics? And I'm doing it because, you know, one, um, you know, founding the Conscious Marketing Institute, I, I really think it's important for us as marketers and communicators to start leading these conversations because we are trained communicators. Two, when you see this stuff happening online, if we just let it sit, 
then it just sits and it grows and it festers. But when you can come in and you can actually start to just show that we're all humans on the other side of it, I find that it diffuses the conversation very quickly. And I'm also finding that people change their perspective surprisingly enough. And so, you know, like I said, like as a group, I think that we almost, we have a unique opportunity as marketers and media professionals and communicators to do a couple of things. One, bringing back true journalism where we're actually researching the facts and we're presenting unbiased opinions. We're getting ready to uh, release a video right now that essentially teaches consumers how to how to see the hero's journey in media so that they can know that that's part of a manipulation tactic for them and that they can ignore those as not necessarily fake news, but definitely sensationalism and definitely persuasive news that's being used to, to guide you towards a decision. And, and we can all be a part of that change if we can agree on civility for ourselves and understand what that means. And we know we can use our communication tools to actually have that happen. Um, but we also have to be pretty bold. You know, you have to be willing to step your toe in the fire and to take whatever comes with it. And, um, and that's a, it's a tough one because not everybody wants to be a part of that. Right. And, and I was struck by, you know, what you're saying that I think that we, um, you know, you need to factor this into our communications planning and, 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 and the models that we've, you know, come to um, embrace over the last, you know, 100 years of, of, of strategic, you know, communications evolution. And, and you know, I, I'm trained and taught, you know, to, to market toward the center of the bell curve, you know, because if you want to achieve change and you want to, uh, to get momentum, you know, behind a particular issue, then, then you forget about the people on the fringes because they're not movable, right? And we focus on the people in the middle, that are attuned to the issue, that are alert, um, that may be impacted in some way, that they're not, you know, fully grounded and, and immersed and, and decided and figure out who those people are and persuade them. And then we drag the bell curve in that direction. Well, I'm forgetting about those people on the, on the edges because they're so locked in. Those people vote, you know, those people are, are having these conversations online and, and they're not helping the conversation. So I think we've, we've really got to figure out a way to rethink that um, that paradigm and, and bring those people in somehow. How do we communicate in those situations without minimizing those people? Because I think like that's definitely one source of criticism that we see both on the left and the right, that the establishment has minimized them. And um, I think I totally agree with you. And I find myself often leaning in the middle right now. And I, I just mm -hmm. feel like it's, like there are guns everywhere, you know, both sides online. And, uh, but it, I do think that that's one of the issues that we're facing right now is that people feel disenfranchised. They feel alone. They feel unheard. And um, uh, how do we affect change without necessarily dismissing those folks? Are you loving what Jeff is laying down? You should hire him. Learn more at livingstoncampaigns.com. I really like seeing something happen that impacts people. There's nothing quite like building a product or a service or helping a cause where you get to see the customer or the end user really feel awesome or smile because this changed the way they think about the world. When you do something like that, that has lasting impact. And there's only three types of campaigns you can buy. Fundraising, product launch, or some major corporate initiative. Learn more at livingstoncampaigns.com. And now let's get back to the show. Uh, but it, I do think that that's one of the issues that we're facing right now is that people feel disenfranchised. They feel 
alone, they feel unheard. And um, uh, how do we affect change without necessarily dismissing those folks? I mean, I, I don't know if I had the answer to that, you know, I'd, I'd be in the Oval Office, I guess, or, or not. <laughs> probably not. <laughs> probably not. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think, you know, what, what, I'm, what I'm working on more here at the ACLU at Virginia is, is talking about humanity. And, um, you know, I think, you know, that, that there's a large percentage, apparently, of people that, you know, that, that do feel marginalized and disenfranchised and forgotten and excluded and, and all that. But, it's, but the, the reason they feel that way is because they're seeing other groups advance, you know, and we're, we're moving toward equality. And for some reason, that feels like you as a privileged, you know, are losing something. Um, and, and I really want to talk more about, you know, the humanity of, of issues like immigration and like criminal justice reform and, and, and how they really impact real people, whether they look like you or, or not, whether they have the background, you know, like you or not. We had a conversation with a, a job applicant a few months ago, and the questions on there about, we're talking about diversity a minute ago, I'm kind of looping back to that, about, uh, you know, explain your experience in working with, you know, diverse people and communities. And, and the answer was, well, we're all the same. You know, we're all the same. That's what equality is. is we're understanding that we're all the same. And that's what diversity is. Well, it's not. It's understanding that we're not the same. We're not the same at all. And, you know, it's something I've come more and more to realize, again, as a white, heterosexual, cisgender, reasonably, you know, comparatively affluent male, is that I have benefited from privilege my whole life. We're not the same. And, and hearing that, you know, everybody has the same rights in this country and everybody is treated the same, you know, by our government, by our criminal justice system, by, you know, various aspects of, of, of our society that we're not, we're not. There are people who are deliberately excluded and marginalized and hurt. Um, and yeah. And it's interesting. I, so I, I talked about this. I do a mirror conversation where I, um, I just like go on Facebook live and I talk to myself in the mirror the way that I self-reflect. And I, I, I was reflecting today on this conversation that I had had with somebody who's very close to me. And I had just asked the question, I said, you know, look, if everyone in the world had, was able to have housing, education, food, clothing, health, you know, safe water, all of their basic needs met, would you oppose that? And the, the response was, well, what did they do to earn it? And I was like, whoa, <laughs> like, it doesn't even affect you. Like, I'm not even saying that you have to pay for it or that it's gonna affect you negatively in any way. The immediate question was, what did they do to earn it? Do you see that kind of bias happening of like that there's this, there's this assumption that if you, that just that we have to earn anything and earn a right to live is like, it's hard for me to even understand that when we live on a planet where all the resources are free and we created money and all of these systems. Um, but, you know, what is your perspective on that? I mean, you're, you're right. And yeah, we see it all the time. And, you know, not the ACLU um, talking here, just just me. Um, you call it liberal guilt. I, I don't like my privilege. I, I don't. It's part of the reason that I come to work here every day and, and try to do the things that I do that, that, you know, we ought to have a base level of, um, you know, what people can expect, a standard, you know, of living uh, that people can expect and, and clean water and food and, 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 and housing and all the things in the first level of Maslow's hierarchy. You know, what, what, we don't have that. Um, and it, it pains me that the, the, the people I know, the people of, that are in marginalized and vulnerable communities have to struggle and fight for anything. Um, but they do. And yeah, I say that all the time. I'm sure it's everywhere. How do we uh, deal with that as communicators? Like what, 
what kind of things do we have to think about before we even put, I guess, the proverbial pen to paper? I mean, obviously now that's changed a lot, whether it's recording video or audio or whatever it might be. But what do we need to think about as strategists, as people that are responsible for organizations or campaigns? Um, that's a good question. I, I don't know that I have the answer to that. Um, again, I think it goes back to, you know, talking to the communities that we're ostensibly working to support um, and, and including them in those conversations. I, I don't have a magic wand on that one. I just want to, I'm going to kind of call out the marketing industry a little bit because one of the things that I have, um, I just find slightly appalling personally is the way that we target people. And when we are targeting based on color, we're targeting based on age, we're targeting based on sexual orientation, uh, we're, we're targeting on all of these things that the ACLU is fighting to protect our rights on. But as marketers, we use this as if it's if we assume that all of these people are the same, like you said, and so we market to them in that way. And I think the first thing that we can do as marketers is just stop, to stop targeting that way, stop targeting by age, stop targeting even, you know, by, um, you know, religious, you know, orientation, you know, all of these things, when we're doing that, we're perpetuating the bias because we think that, that this group acts the same way versus recognizing people's individuality. And I think it's time for us to really start to move towards marketing towards experiences that people want. You know, if you um, are into meditation, for example, then you're likely to like this type of organization or this type of company because you like meditation, not because you're a person of color or you're white or anything else. Um, and I think that's the number one thing that we can stop doing right now. And quite frankly, I'm, I'm surprised it's not illegal for us to be targeting this way when it's illegal to hire that way. It's illegal to fire that way. You know, what are your thoughts? Do you think that there might be some changes in the marketing industry? Well, I hope no, I hope no laws. I mean, I don't think that's going to happen because, you know, we as journalists do operate in the realm of the First Amendment. We couldn't do what we do as marketers without the First Amendment um, to allow us to, to speak on behalf of our organizations. Um, but I, I agree with your point. Um, and, and I think it is, you know, going back to, you know, the role of, of particularly corporate you know, communicators to not buy into that trap of looking at what just what the data tells you, who your product sells to, or where there's a hole in the market, um, and really thinking about the larger picture of the impact that your organization has in the way it does business. And um, Jeff knows my wife um, works for a, a large corporation and, and in online marketing is amazing at what she does. And, you know, I, I look at the impact that she has and the influence that she has, and it's so critically important that marketers communicators as a conduit between the organizations and the people that they're trying to serve um, or, you know, benefit from in some cases that, that we, you know, be attuned to that and, and recognize the role, you know, corporate responsibility um, is a, is a huge one and it, and it rests with us as the communicators. Yeah. I think like, I hate to be the contrarian on this one, but I feel like the trains off the station on this, especially in the era of data marketing and mm -hmm. uh, algorithms and, machine learning, I mean, what we're seeing is basically, it's even beyond the human now. It, it, we're being sliced and diced and put into buckets, uh, buckets by algorithms. And, you know, we, we might even have a picture that literally there are six versions of it and as soon as the algorithm determines that, uh, Nicole, you're a white female in her, uh, you know, early middle age, boom, there's your photo, right? And, and, and We've seen this and we've heard myths about this with the Target thing and the, the whole 
direct mail piece where the, the girl was outed for being pregnant to her father. And uh, we see it all the time with just the stuff we're targeted on online. You know, we God forbid if we go look at something online and shop, you know, we're going to get endless amounts of content, specific deals. I've seen it myself just with, uh, you all know that I'm a photographer, just the amount of precision that I'm starting to see with these ads are just, it's shocking. And right. I feel like that we've lost control. It's just gone, you know? And I, so I just saw a post recently this weekend and it was a, a good friend of mine that is in um, a group I call the sisterhood. It's a, a women's mastermind. And it was talking about the yoga communities and how all the marketing for yoga communities is these white middle-aged women, you know, and this affluence that's been brought into the yoga community, but it's lost the spirit of what yoga was all about, you know, and um, that first of all, you know, um, having no persons of color in the advertising isn't even accurate um, to what the community represents and where it started from. And so I think as marketers, like one, I'm still shocked that we don't have more diversity in stock photography. Like when you try to find stock photos with diversity, you have to look really hard. How is right. this possible? Like, guess, I mean, that's what most photographers are white male. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's really obscene. And I think that as marketers, we can start demanding this change. We can start demanding more diversity in photos. We can start doing our research, understanding not only the audience demographics that we're marketing to, but also those that we're missing. Because it's not necessarily that our products and services don't apply to these gender groups or whatever um, other groups that we're looking at, it's simply that we haven't reached them yet, you know, and there's certainly cases where the products don't apply, but in a large um, perspective of it, I think that, you know, a lot of it is that we're not even attempting to reach these audiences with our products and services. We're just as biased in how we're marketing is and, and targeting people as we are and putting our messages out there. Yeah. And I think, you know, Jeff's right in the sense of the, you know, train having left the station, you know, it's ironic. I spend a fair amount of time um, yelling about government surveillance and and you know keeping data on everyone and privacy and all that and you know the, what, what's happening in private industry is worse. Um, so, but yeah, I, I don't know uh, if, it, if if it's left the station or not, but it feels that way. Well, I mean, you can't disappear in this country. I've, I like did. I ran a little experiment. I was like, what if I just wanted to disappear? And I, you know, didn't want to have a forwarding address and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And it was like, I had a post office box, um, but you weren't allowed, like they, you had to put your social security number on your post office box. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, I mean, it's the, the level of tracking that's happening. If you actually like start to look behind the curtain here, um, it's, it's a lot like you really, there is a lot of data on us out there and it's not necessarily being collected or used by individuals that we've given permission to. And I've used the example before of credit reporting agencies absolutely using and selling our data without our permission. Um, we had just had the, the last episode we talked about, you know, political parties selling our information without permission. And it's interesting because as we look at what's happening in the EU and you're seeing a bigger crackdown on laws, you know, basically that your terms and conditions have to be written in a way that people can understand them. I'd love to see some of that stuff coming over into the US as well as to the point of why can't laws be written in a way that a human can understand them? You know, why can't an individual go, an individual taxpayer go navigate the court system without a high paid attorney? 
Um, you know, th these are all the things that, you know, I'm seeing not only from a marketing perspective, but where our country could evolve to. And I think it requires that all of us speak up and say, this is what we want and this is what's important to us and, and not feel like, you know, our opinion doesn't matter and that we can't enact change. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's going to require a large amount of education um, as to why privacy is, is important, you know, and in the post 911 um, world, we've, we've sacrificed a lot of that. We've given up a lot of that, it's particularly with regard to government surveillance in the name of, you know, security and safety. But, um, you know, I, I don't want to, um, you know, buy into a, a stereotype here myself, but, you know, what we know and research on, on you know, the millennials and, and, and younger is that they don't privacy is, is a foregone conclusion. They don't, they just accept that we don't have that in the world that we live in now. It's funny that you mentioned credit reporting because I was just thinking about um, a, a website that I ran across maybe a year ago that reported itself to be an ancestry type website. But what you could do is use it for research to find, you know, a, a, a missing person or whatever. And if you look at it, it was all drawn from credit reports because they could tell you every place you'd ever live, um, all the, the people who were associated with you, which are the people that you use as references or contacts when you file a credit application. It was all public and all available for anybody to see. It was really frightening, uh, the information that's that easily, easily obtained. Just a small fee. Right. <laughs> just a Phone numbers, addresses, anything you want. Yeah. And you see that in just like reverse lookup and everything else. So, um, well, and, you know, and, and again, like irony here, I mean, we object to that, you know, very strongly at the ACLU when the government does it here in Virginia. If you uh, want to vote absentee, you fill out a form that says, I'm going to be out of town on these dates. Here's the jobs that I work. I'm pregnant. You know, any manner of things that are approved excuses that the government has um, to allow you to vote absentee. And that's a public record. Your, your ex spouse or your nosy neighbor, anybody can go down there and look at that. You may not even share that information with the people closest to you, but you have to do it if you want to vote. Um, so. Interesting. Interesting. Well, Bill, thank you so much for joining us. I know you um, had a short window today, so I want to honor and respect your time, but we really appreciate you having this conversation. And I hope that as for all the marketers who are listening, that they've not only learned something, but they've seen something that they can change in their own marketing practice so that we can evolve as an industry and be more sensitive and aware of all of the humans that are available on this planet that can that we can connect with and ultimately help empower and inspire. Absolutely, and thank you. And I just invite any uh, marketers, communicators who are listening to uh, follow us on uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We're ACLUVA, and also you can find more about us at ACLUVA.org. Thank you for joining the Conscious Marketing Podcast and taking a look in the mirror with us. We hope you found you learned something new about yourself and have another tool to help raise the bar of consciousness in our industry. If you liked what you heard, please take the time to give us a review. Every review matters and helps another marketer find their way here. Want to have next week's episode automatically queued up for your commute? Remember to subscribe before you leave. We thank you for your support. Please go to ConsciousMarketingInstitute.com for show notes, links, and other awesome resources. It is our honor to serve you. Now, let's go change the world. Music for the Conscious Marketing Podcast is provided by Sophia Fleming. Please check out our new album, Collection of Reflections. Just search for Sophia Fleming online.